This is John Peterson, author of Playing at the World, and you are listening to Save or Die. Howdy do, everybody. Welcome to episode 130 of Save or Die. <sighs> With you is your mailman for male fans, and that came out wrong. <laughs> Mike. I, I don't even want to know where chow. that came from. Chow, <laughs> chow, chicka, head, chow, you know, chicka, chow. Mailman, fan mail. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah With don't, me don't do that again. is the mighty mailman himself, DM Jim. Now Best with email on the show, e- mailman on the show. Now with extra grumpiness. <laughs> and also joining us is Saverdie's worst mailman, DM Liz. <laughs> I'm the female man, man. man. <laughs> He's a man, baby. Gotta hope not. And this uh, is an email show, so if you don't like emails, why are you listening to this? Run away. <laughs> but first. What did we do with David this week? Who cares? Ow! What have we done in gaming this week? It's the end of the year. We can get away with another one, I think. Sure, so- sure. What have you been doing, Jim? Who cares? Bam! Ow! I'm going to find the limits of caffeine, that is. I was telling you exactly what I was doing before we went on air, so let me try and clean it up for broadcast. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I've had an exciting week of 12-hour days uh, working in the lucrative field of game design. <laughs> and not playing any games. He drew the turtle head. <laughs> so, uh, hey, I, I, I will take the opportunity to do a shout-out, though, because I was laying out the Mutant Crawl Classics book while listening to Glowburn, and it was very entertaining. I like that show. I, Th- those guys have got some high production values, and they put a lot of work into making it content-heavy. I'm so jealous. You've got a podcast for your game, and you didn't even have to start it yourself. I'm so jealous. <laughs> and and the game is not even out, which makes no sense to me. So what they're actually doing is talking a little bit about MCC, but a lot about post-apocalyptic uh, role-playing in general, which is why I'm enjoying it. So that did well, sound... Well, Classics is out, so, you know, in a way, they kind of know the basic framework, more or less. And I'm of also course. going to assume that they've played in some of the playtest games at conventions and stuff, so... 
they probably know just enough to get themselves into trouble. Well, I, I, I enjoy it for what that's worth. Your mileage may vary. And they follow Jim from con to con, so, you know. I'm kind of a blur at cons. It's hard to catch me, so, yeah, good job. <laughs> yeah. And your memory is a blur after a con. Oh, man. Cons are hard. <laughs> How about yeah. you guys? I know you just, you came yesterday with cake. You did. <laughs> with cake, yes. It was Crash our GM's birthday about a week ago, maybe a week and a half, somewhere in there. But um, And you baked him a cake, is, so that should have been and good. And I baked him a cake. That should so, have been good for an experience level right there. Yeah, well, none of us died, so that was good. And Although, Mike did level up. I didn't level up. I was the one who made the cake. <laughs> Although it was a bit awkward because uh, Alex brought his wife or girlfriend. My apologies. We didn't catch that, Amanda. And she was playing an NPC that was already with our, our uh, group, a guardswoman named Bridget. And I had been snarking and trying to get Bridget killed all during the last game. Yeah, when he, she was being run as an NPC. But now Amanda is here, and she's taken over Bridget, and Mike can't do that anymore. Oh, did you have to give her some metagame uh, mercy? Yes. I can no longer. It's, it's like, well, you know, if you fire, because I was running a rogue, a rogue a thief character, the bounty hunter, and uh, whenever in melee, you know, firing into melee, you got that one in six chance of hitting your friends. So he would only fire at the bad guys when they were in melee with Bridget and prayed for that hit. Never got it, but, you know. But, of course, not once Amanda was running, I had to, no, I can't do that. Damn it. <laughs> but it was fun. We finished the module. It was called Border Raid. Um, or Border Watch or something like that. Anyway, and now he wants to get us involved with the Doom Grinder. So, yay. That's a happy-sounding module right there. Isn't it? <laughs> I Isn't can't it? wait. Kind of tells you what it does on the tin. I know. <laughs> beautiful vaca- vacation to beautiful Doom Grinder. Yeah, okay. Actually, it sounds like a Lamentations of the Flame Princess module. <laughs> but, oh, anyhow. my. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, well, and all that that entails. Entails. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I guess the only other thing to chat about before we get into emails is a week or two ago, Jack Chick died. the The writer of little cart comic books that told us how Catholic Freemasons were using D and D to to destroy Harry Potter or something like that. Uh, and, uh, well, we, those of us who really enjoyed the Dark Dungeons mini-comic and lived through the 80s satanic panic will miss him. Well, it was, it, it was certainly a time. Yeah. My, mm. <laughs> my, mo- my mother always said, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. But she's dead too now, so screw that guy. Uh, I, I, I kind of feel bad for Jack Chick. Because you kind of get the impression he hated a lot of people. <laughs> and Sincere. He, he couldn't have been very happy, I don't think. And He did so. have a lot of money, apparently. So, mm-hmm. Well, the only other couple of things I'd like to mention is 
I made a discovery that our listeners might find interesting. I was poking around on uh, con sites and found out that DundraCon has got its program books from the late 70s and early 80s available as free downloads as PDFs. So we'll put that in the show notes, but for those of us who never went to DunderCon but would love to have seen what was offered in 1978, it's really cool. It's a nice little retro feel. We'll link it so you can go there and take a look at it as you wish. And I wanted to give a shout-out to Grognard Files again. Dirk the Dice was kind enough to send me a free copy of their fanzine including a little mini booklet by Daily from Daily Dwarf and my own little Carol Monroe shrine in a closed envelope, which I dare not open because it might destroy their shrine, and I can't do that. Mike will fail his save against the greatness that is Carolyn Monroe. That's right. So naturally, I can't touch it, but I have it, so there it is. Thanks, Dirk. And Blythe's still wrong. <laughs> Maybe Dirk can bring Blythe on if we can get them on the show sometime this this coming year. That would be awesome. We should so do I that. Could tell, I could tell Blythe directly he's wrong. Why Why would he want to do that? Um, For the experience points? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you just keep telling yourself that. <laughs> it's plausible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe he. You could have him on as a co future co host after I stroke out. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, nah, you stroke out. We're gonna weekends and mer- weekend at Bernie's. You. <laughs> <laughs> we'll raise you as a lich, and then you'll have to be with us forever. Da da da. Oh, that, all right. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> a techno, a techno lich, because you know, got to get that mutant crawl classics edge there. So. Oh, damn! Now I have to write that into the game. That's a good thing. Woo-hoo. Cool. All right, then, barring any announcements, we will go to our commercial break, and when we return, emails, emails, emails. You must trust me without hesitation, for this is the most important adventure of your very lives. Are you ready to RPG? Yeah! One goal, and one goal only, to stay in the game. Let's get ready to RPG! Who are you? I'm Marcy. No, you are not Marcy. Who are you? I'm Blackleaf, the Thief of the Shadows. RPG! 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 Maybe we should go. That senior warned us about playing RPGs. Using RPGs to fight evil will never work because RPGs are evil. Spells? I think your hands are perfect for spellcasting. There's so much that you could do with them. Poison. <gasps> Battles. <gasps> Maiming. Killing. I'm going to die? Yeah, but it's all imagination. Is it? And thanks to the power of the subconscious, they will begin to live it for real. Playing. But I thought the Necronomicon and Cthulhu were just fictional. Oh no, Debbie. 
The Necronomicon and Cthulhu mythos are all too real. Welcome to Glowburn, a podcast dedicated to the mutant crawl classics roleplay game. Podcast.glowburn.org. Back to Dungeons and Dragons. Get down, get down. Get down, get down. The Save or Die email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh, man. Emails, emails, emails. Do we have any emails? That'd be funny. We do an email show. And yes, then we have we're doing no an email show. We have no emails. Yeah. Well, fortunately for you, we have all the emails you can eat right here. So plenty to go around. And if you are ready, I will begin. Please begin. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually right. interested in how you're going to pronounce a couple of these things. I, I am too. <laughs> I will be just as surprised as you are. <laughs> All righty. Well, our first email is from DM Sir Nomad, and he writes, Hello again, Sodders. Just finished listening to your latest email hot tub and was delighted to hear my last letter read. Uh-oh. Yes, Liz, you did butcher my nick, but it is okay. I think I wrote it like my email rather than as two words as I normally use it. It is Sir Nomad, just for reference. When you were discussing my question about players converting dungeons over to strongholds, you mentioned that at the tower, yeah, sorry, you mentioned that at the lower levels, players are not interested in setting up a base of operation. As I played through much of my first decade in the game, I was also serving in the Navy. So periodically, I changed locations and had to retire entire groups, sometimes as NPCs, for the next crew to encounter. So my campaign is dotted with businesses and minor holdings established by my characters in the 5 to 9 level range, including one that is protected by a young gold dragon who is being raised by a dwarf who owns the tavern. Cuts down on bar fights. I'll bet. I got into the habit of sitting down with my group before my transfers to give them an option of setting up semi-permanent presences in my world. Keep up the fine work, and I will keep listening. DM Sir Nomad. Thanks, Nomad. Sir Nomad. Um, that's cool. I really wish more parties would do stuff like that. 
even if they're not looking to retire, just a central base of operations. I think most parties, though, like wandering because the theory is they can find one dungeon, then wander to the next dungeon, rinse, repeat. Well, there's a natural tendency at low levels to convert all your gold to nifty stuff you can still carry around. But at some point, that that ends. Yeah. Speaking of which, in our game, we got a pile of gold. We need to go load up on jewelry or other things. Well, my paladin is about to finally get a suit of full plate, so she's very happy about that. <laughs> mm. So anyway. A lot of times, when you retire a set of characters and start a new campaign... I, I think very rarely people really think about, okay, what will my old characters do now that I'm starting up this new set? And that's it's an interesting idea to, you know, have those old characters, you know, just pop up every once in a while. And I love it. Easy use of NPCs. That, that, yeah. that, that email was the most old school thing I've heard lately. Cool. Well, thanks, Sir Nomad. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, said he just finished listening to the latest email hot tub when he wrote this letter and was, not whenever that was, <laughs> that was a few months ago. Um, it's been a and while. And now his next letter is in the next email hot tub, so awesome. <laughs> the circle of life. Yes. All righty. Our next email is from DM Mothshade. 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 And he writes, greetings, Marquises and Marchioness de Sade. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> well, I was about to say I got promoted, but I'm not sure we did. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to thank you for bringing Pelinor to my attention, as it totally flew under my radar as a fledgling gamer. Your examinations and reviews were enlightening and entertaining, making me eager to jump right in. As I am still reading, I won't venture my own observations, but it is very enjoyable so far. While I'm here, I'd like to cast my vote for an expansion revisitation of Moldvay Basic and of Expert, if convenient, in a future episode. BX was my gateway to the entire hobby, and I can't get enough background, detail, or critique of the products. In closing, I will mention that both Lord and Lady Mothshade plan to attend the upcoming Gamehole Con and Gary Con events. One of my priorities will be to find any of you also in attendance and shake your hands personally. Yours is the finest podcast on my playlist, and I have come to hold you all in high esteem. Long may you wave and roll. Cheers, Mothshade. Well, thank you, Mothshade. I'm glad we're the best in your in your playlist. I don't know what else is on your playlist, but <laughs> that is very high praise indeed. Yes. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't suppose you ran into him at Gamehole Con, Jim. I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> you know, that's already a month ago, and it's all a blur. Uh I think so. I mean, you were running from place to place, so I'm sure. So I think know, he so. may not have been able to track you down. Probably, maybe, like outside smoking. I think so. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully, we'll get to meet him at uh, Gary Con, which we are attending. Though we still need to buy badges. That's that's the only thing we haven't done. But yeah, that'd be really embarrassing. We get there and we 
there was no badges, so we're just standing outside. Pressing our faces against the glass, looking in, <laughs> looking <laughs> sad. <Over> twisty in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still have some inside connections, so I know how you can always get a badge no matter what. It's just offer Luke, like, a grand for a platinum badge, and he'll make more. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we're in they were that flush in cash right yet but something to consider for the future <laughs> i'll give him a signed copy of victorious that's about a thousand yeah yeah sure that's sure. worth about a thousand dollars yeah sure it is one anyway. venezuelan dollars <laughs> <laughs> exactly okay next email all righty well let me let me say we're, we're probably we probably are going to do a revisitation of Basic Expert because it looks like me fans have have said, and Jim gets we'll get Jim's opinion on them this time around. So I was there. I bought them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought them too. I, well, I mean, I fresh have... uh, fresh in that uh, you weren't around the first time we reviewed those things, right? So. Mm. Okay, cool. And our next email is from DM Pesky Wabbit. Oh, <laughs> nice. And he writes, "Good evening, sod hosts from across the pond in good old Blighty. I've spent the last few months binge listening to almost all of your archived podcasts. Thank you, Liz, for excusing me from listening to the North Texas RPG Con ones." as I felt they are not really relevant to me, as I doubt I'll be able to go. Aww. So now I think it's time I started sharing some of my thoughts. I'm an old-school gamer from back in the early 80s, when I was introduced to Redbox Basic and 1E Advanced. Didn't like anything after that. <laughs> On the subject of the lack of players wanting to play spellcasters, especially clerics, I created a house rule on the resting time for regaining spells. Instead of needing a full night's rest, I would allow the characters to have a 10-minute full and uninterrupted rest period. Clerics thanking their gods, magi reading their spell books for each level of spells cast to regain them. This allowed the clerics to be able to be more than just the healer without fear of wasting their spells, especially in the early levels. So now the clerics could cast an array of spells throughout the evening sessions and not just cure light wounds. The mages could now relearn a spell suited to a situation without waiting for tomorrow for that knock spell to open a locked door that seems to bar the way. I know it's not a perfect system, and some would argue it makes spellcasters too powerful and even a bit reckless. But in playing, it made my games run at a faster pace without wasting time running back to towns, etc. Higher level spells get longer and give the opportunity for random encounters, searches, etc. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Yours sincerely, DM Pesky Wabbit. That pesky wabbit. Uh... Waskily wabbit. Oh. <laughs> Well, who wants to take that? That is a house rule that my brother ran in his original AD&D campaign way back in the 80s. So I read that email and I went, oh, that's just exactly how my brother used to run his universe. It certainly does everything he says, I'm sure. And, of course, when you're getting up to ninth level spells an hour and a half, of course, if you're casting ninth level spells, you know, it's, that's that. 
I don't know. I'm torn. On the one hand, I do agree that the mage shooting his one or two spells, then having to set up till the next day is can be tedious in play. On the other hand, I think part of what makes old school D&D, especially classic D&D, so important is the logistics part of figuring out what spells are going to are hopefully going to be pertinent in a given day. So I'm torn. Well, it certainly does the job, I mean, that he's looking for. Um, that's, well, I mean, I, that's the same reason you don't care for spell points, Mike. And yep. it's kind of a different variant of... Well, it, gets, it does the same thing more or less as someone deciding to use spell points rather than, you know, the total memorization yeah. route. Um, but as a player, I, I've got to say I like the increased flexibility and I think if it, I was going to go ahead sorry it's very difficult at a low level especially if you are a mage to be able to do much of anything because you feel obligated much like a low level cleric does if you have something like magic missile you feel obligated to learn that as your spell because if you do decide to get knocked or sleep, you know. You you don't really feel like you have the ability to be creative. And more that's or less. even more important or even more the case with clerics. Because yeah. the, the party's gonna want cure spells. That's um, right. And if you don't memorize or if you don't pray for the cure light wounds, you decide to get something else instead, someone gets badly hurt, and then the rest of your table yells at you. Yeah. And that's not fun for anyone. So, I, I, I don't. I don't know that it's only a low-level concern because uh, DM Todd ran us through Expedition of the Barrier Peaks a couple of years ago, and you can, you know, bet your bottom gold piece. I memorized my spells, knowing what was coming at twelfth level. With mm-hmm. the twelfth level magic user, I sat down and went, "Okay, this is what I know I'm going to need," and there was a whole strategy to what I did. But I'll be real heretical and say I don't think it matters one way or the other. Because there are, it's it's like alignments. When you play a game that doesn't have alignments, you don't ever stop to think about whether it, you know, argue whether it's three or nine point, right? So, <laughs> in DCC, which is what I'm running now, uh, this isn't even an issue because there's no rule for it. You just have to get your eight hours of rest, and you pop up with everything. Stone him, <laughs> and, and I can still kill you if I want to. <laughs> Stone the blasphemer. You may have a point. Um... I don't know that I'd go as far as 10 minutes. If I was going to do anything, I'd probably do something like an hour per spell level. That way you still get some more ran- random monster, wandering monster rolls in, in there. But uh, I don't know. I mean, because you're adding the 10 minutes on for every level. So, I mean, sooner or later, you're going to, it's going to be very unlikely that you're, there's not going to be a wandering monster pop up within the space of half an hour. There's almost always something that winds up happening. Mm-hmm. Um, good judging skills are, or good DMing skills are important, though. Like, if you do have a player playing a magic user or a wizard who's, who, by these rules in the email, and he starts getting too powerful and even a bit reckless, you just start screwing with his spell book, you know? It just, you know, <laughs> get, up, get him from camp one morning, and it's missing, and that's the end of that. Yeah, yeah. 
Pa. Okay. I'm just <laughs> yeah. I'm just grogging. <laughs> Thanks for it's the email, Pesky idea. Wabbit. <laughs> and Don't onward. pay attention to him. <laughs> All righty. Our next email is from the Iron Realm Podcast. Aww. Otherwise, otherwise known as Abel Enzo. <laughs> <laughs> And Iron Realm writes, Greetings, Saber Die Clan. I was much intrigued by the discussion of character smells in D&D. <laughs> in particular, the discussion regarding Gold Meadow the Elf, who smells wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, Pelinor. That topic is never going away now. <laughs> Truly, it is rare for such descriptions to come up in a hack-and-slay game, where... As one voice on the show delicately put it, everyone smells like that. <laughs> Uh-oh, Liz gets beeped. Did I forget? To, I must have forgotten to beep that when I said it. <laughs> I am reminded of a game I ran during which the elven race and the human race met for the first time. The player characters were divided into two groups, and I recall giving the elven characters a description of the human tribe, which included the line, and they kind of smell. To me, that seemed reasonable and appropriately descriptive for a first meeting. However, one of my human players became very perturbed and exclaimed, Oh, really? Well, maybe I think it's the elves that smell. <laughs> what is that talcum odor? <laughs> yeah. Like, that new, new elf scent. <laughs> Fresh tree scent. <laughs> A problem such as this could likely be solved with the inclusion of a seventh ability score called Scent. <laughs> An 18 would be one unbelievably good-smelling person. A 3, well, I think you get the idea. Also, neither charisma nor comeliness makes any mention of the way a character smells. You don't have to look it up. I already checked. <laughs> <laughs> Many thanks again for the excellent show, Iron Realm Podcast. From the able Maze Master. Ah, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't think I want a, a, a an ability score called scent. Uh, well, nope. and I noticed he nope, didn't nope, mention nope. what the elves smelled like to the humans. <laughs> um, that kind of smell thing, I suppose, could if you're going to go really hunter gathery tribe that. You know, someone could make an argument. Hmm. Um, I'm sure all elves think humans stink because all elves are, or most elves, at least in my games, tend to be rather arrogant, <laughs> <laughs> opinionated, and narcissistic. Do you but remember yeah. that Enterprise episode? Because, like, you know, 40 years of Star Trek, they never mentioned Vulcans can't stand the way humans smell. And then suddenly in Star Trek Enterprise, it came up with one of the characters. I... I I really never watched Enterprise after they had the the uh, was it the chief engineer got pregnant by the alien and he's walking around and they're they're hitting every cheap pregnancy stereotype with him, including craving pickles or some ice cream or something like that. And I was like, okay, I'm out. So <laughs> Liz still liked it though, and she watched several episodes. I mean, if it's yeah, Star Trek, I, I, I'll watch it no matter how bad it is. I watched all the J.J. Abrams movies. We have yet to to watch the latest one. We need to do that. Yeah. 
Well, but, uh, it was re- I when they introduced Khan, I was like, been there, done that. And besides, wasn't the first movie Wrath of Khan just aimed at Spock? <laughs> well, yeah, there was the Khan guy. He just hated Spock instead of Khan hating hating uh, Kirk. Kirk. But it was very same thing, trying to get a device that will destroy planets, you know, so on and so forth. And they did destroy Vulcan, blah. Well, but seriously, anyway. in, in terms of what the email said, the only objection I have to it in, in principle is that a little bit will go a long way because players get distracted by stuff like this and then micro-focus on it, which is, which he actually described happening in, in the letter. Um, well, plus, that's... Oh, I was just going to say, plus I can... Goodman Games just came out with these scratch-off character sheets where you discover your abilities during the play of the module, and now I can see that evolving into scratch-and-sniff character sheets. <laughs> <laughs> Sniff the character sheet to see how your character smells. <laughs> well, I think, like I've said before, I asked Dirk the Dice if that was some sort of British thing, and of course he replied with, no, it, they were just trying to expand role-playing at the time. And I can see that argument, although, again, I notice nobody else seemed, like Liz said, nobody else seemed to have a scent except a crappy one. Yes, Gold Meadow, Gold Meadow was the only one ever mentioned who smelled nice. Anytime anybody else's character was mentioned as having an aroma, it tended to be a bad one. It although like, it, okay, whatever. <laughs> to be fair, it did remind me of those Paul Kidd D&D novels. When they were talking about the fairy, Escala, who is obviously a magic user thief combo, mm-hmm. and then talking about how she left the area and you know, left left the mat smelling of sunflowers and marked cards. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I guess I'm saying until it becomes important to the level of okay, make a saving throw versus this guy's smell, or you you know are incapacitated with nausea. I don't care. Didn't uh, Gamma World have some sort of, like, repulsion field like that? that, Uh, Attraction odor, if you got that defect. Oh, yeah, that retracted carnivores. Yeah. That's it. See, there's a game mechanic. I can live with that. (laughs) Ooh, you smell tasty. (laughs) Good luck on second watch. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks for the info, and we'll go to the next email. All righty. Our next email is from DM Reagan. He says, hey, Amigos, I'm not stupid. I can kind of get what taco <laughs> means from the context in which you use it. But how about you let those of us who have only been listening for the last 30 episodes in on the joke? You use it six <laughs> times in an episode, and you never clue in the new listeners as to what exactly you're talking about. Thanks in advance, DM Reagan. This was me when I started as a host, like 70 episodes ago. I'm like, what the hell is Taco? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Mike. (laughs) Okay, okay, he's right. I had to make up my own acronym to explain it to myself, but... I am a humble cur. All right, here we go. Taco, many, many, many episodes ago, it was a term that floated around our peer group outside the podcast and what it basically was used in lieu of word or just if you didn't know what to say you didn't have a comment and you wanted to end discussion you just said i don't know taco 
So it really meant nothing. It was just kind of a marker to say, you know, conversation's kind of over. <laughs> I'm I'm done. I'm out. I have no clue. Catch all, whatever. And so I brought it in to the podcast. And then someone else asked, like Jim was just saying, you know, what it meant. And Jim, always going above and beyond the call of duty, actually made a uh, acronym out of it. Well, you, what would it mean? You seem to always use it, even when I was just a listener, whenever somebody would bring up a different system besides basic D&D. Like when I say something about AD&D and, you know, God forbid, DCC. You would yeah, say that. and the thing is, Mike you... would go into a long tirade about how they're the same system. No, no, it's a completely totally different, different system. You know, that's... and just being very sarcastic about it. And I finally Me? said, okay, we get it. We get it. <laughs> so I made it an acronym for, that's a completely, oh, never mind. Taco. So that eventually evolved into having an actual meaning and an actual reference. So hope that helps DM Ragan. Uh, I assume he did that to try to, you know, imply dragon, DM Ragan. Uh, well, it's spelled Reagan. Like oh, it Reagan. is? Okay. Well, my bad then. DM Reagan. Hope that helps. We apologize, although I'll probably have to say that again in another 20 episodes. Jim, remind <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next episode. Next uh email <laughs> next email our next letter is from dm sean ah and starbeard DM sean yes starbeard and he writes hello everyone i'd like to thank you for your recent show with john peterson on saving throws friend of the show as <laughs> as usual i thoroughly enjoyed it and found myself thinking about saving throws all week Oh, well, that's, jo that's for... job done for us, then. Yep. <laughs> I apologize for how long this email has turned out, but I would love to hear your own thoughts. I think a distinction can be made between Tony Bath's saving throw and what we find later in Dungeons & Dragons, or even Chainmail. Bath's saving throws, for example, have persisted relatively unaltered in the wargaming tradition. His two-step method of an accuracy throw, followed by a saving throw, is mirrored even today in many war games, such as Warhammer's three-step method of making a roll to hit, a roll to kill, and a final armor save. To me, yeah, Lynn... Hmm? Yeah, I thought about that um, during the show, but I never got a chance to mention it. Now I wish I had, but... He's right. Warhammer and Warhammer 40K definitely do that. I think it's adorable that in that sentence he spelt armor with the U in it. <laughs> Woo! -hoo. Well, armor. Tony Bass, British, so yeah. <laughs> to me, Lynn Pat's rules for dragon and wizard attacks still seem very much within this tradition. Chainmail, however, included a much wider collection of spells and magical monsters, many of which, like the Basilisk's gaze, have effects that are not combat-oriented, or are powerful enough to make combat meaningless if no mechanical balance is put in place. In effect, Chainmail unwittingly turned saves away from being abstractions of general combat into being abstractions of magic and luck. 
Then, with Dungeons and Dragons, saving throws were taken away from being part of the spell or monster description and instead became attached to the characters themselves. I would argue that the saving throw as we know it was in fact born here, when D&D turned it into a character trait. It also reflects the natural shift that was occurring in the game at the time, moving from battles to adventures, and from controlling generic figures into describing and advancing single characters. I also think Mike hit the nail on the head with his comment about saving throws actually injecting lethality into a game rather than being a safety net. That's because Mike from your sh- That's because Mike knows what he's talking about. Unlike <laughs> I'm glad um, someone does. Of course. <laughs> From your show, it seems pretty apparent that the early game designers saw saving throws as a way to give players a break from cruel umpires by ensuring that the umpire can't simply decide that a character dies. The nature of how D&D is is structured has always made this a sensitive topic and is why tricks like placing a sphere of annihilation in a random doorway is guaranteed (laughs) to cause controversy. You hush your mouth! (laughs) Or in a green demon head. Ironically, though, I think as time went on, players began to have the opposite view. That saving throws allow the referee to kill characters unfairly by bypassing the regular requirement of killing them through normal damage. And so they were gradually sidelined. We can also see a steady hit point inflation throughout D&D's history for the same reason. Just about every edition of D&D has featured higher survivability for low-level PCs than the previous edition, and has reduced the penalties of failing a saving throw. Really, D&D has always been moving very slowly toward a style of play where the only way for a character to die is through the standard loss of hit points. Personally, I like the saving throw. It completely changes the way everyone plays when they know it's there. Without it, after reaching a certain level, everyone gets bored and we start over again. Mm-hmm. But with it, high-level play can continue to be challenging and interesting. All the best, DM Sean Starbeard. Man, I wish we had John Peterson on the show to answer this. Well, actually, I sent his email to John and asked if he'd like to make a rebuttal, at least in writing, to any, any or agree with the points Sean made. See, I told so, you Mike knows what's up. well i read that it was so cool not just because he said i was right but (laughs) (laughs) i thought it would be interesting for everyone if john could actually you know reply to some of the points sean made and he did yes john was kind enough to take the time to write a response and so we have it here i think we need to upgrade john peterson to best friend of the show yeah (laughs) or or an honorary dm All right, so John Peterson replies. While I agree with Sean that Tony Bath-style saves continue to this day, I think it's harder to make the case that saves in Chainmail are really different than saves in Lin Pat's rules. Rolling to save against Dragon's Breath and rolling to save against a Basilisk's Gaze aren't just practically different, or just aren't practically different. I'm not sure how Sean can maintain that a basilisk's gaze is not combat-oriented. 
The only other thing I can find that you roll a save against in Chainmail 2nd Edition is the Spider's Bite. And to be clear, in 1st Edition Chainmail, the only saves were against Dragon's Breath and Wizard Spells, just like in Pat. Certainly, I think we agree that D&D made saving throws more than just a feature of combat, but Chainmail doesn't seem to do that, wittingly or no. In terms of the long-term consequences of saving throws, the increasing number of save-or-die effects in D&D no doubt led to something of a backlash, and to more reliance on hit points as a less astonishing path to character death. But saves, hits, and inconspicuous spheres of annihilation <laughs> are all tools that the D&D referee can deploy to meet the needs of a campaign, and all can be used well or poorly. The key thing, from my perspective, is that since 1974, referees have retained that fundamental latitude in the implementation of D&D and most of the games in the tradition it inspired. I am not sure how successful RPGs have been at breaking that mold more than four decades later. Nor is it clear to me that the mold needs to be broken. The game is still a great experience. John. Thanks, John, for willing to comment on that. And I definitely see where John's coming from. But I have to be a bit heretical and say I come down on Sean's side a little more. Because I think the main point Sean was making is, if you fail your save against a basilisk, there is no combat. Period. You are stone. As opposed to possible survivability against Dragon's Breath. I don't remember if in Chainmail, Dragon's Breath was save or die, or just save or damage. But that's the distinction you're trying to make, between a save or die, or save versus half effect. Right. Right. And I don't recall if Chainmail did that, or if everything was save or die, essentially. It may have been, in which case, um, the floor under my argument just went away, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't... That's my thought. I can't comment at a PhD level like John Peterson or Starbeard, but I do have an opinion in that a lot of this back and forth uh, tension between the two varying concepts is meant to address bad DMing. And I don't think you can write rules in such a way to prevent a bad DM from being a bad DM, nor does a good DM need the rules. I think that's where I'm coming from on it. Like that, uh, I don't know who said it, but I remember seeing it as a tagline to say, uh, writing rules to control du- douchebaggery is an exercise in futility. Trying to say that a rule book can control douchebaggery when society can't is arrogant <laughs> and ridiculous. And I think that's true. You know, no matter what rules you have, a jerk can make a bad game experience. I just checked Chainmail, and yeah, Dragon Breath was save or die, so never mind. (laughs) 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 Uh, Well, I do think that Starbeard has a point about the change of the saving throw mechanic reflecting when it became a character trait. That wasn't something that I'd really thought about before, but 
yeah, you know, when it became hardwired into the different character classes, you know, your thr- your saves being different, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, it's like, yeah, you know, that I hadn't thought of it, but that totally does make sense to me now. It it did change. And the the power level of starting characters creeping up in every edition is definitely true. Mm. Which yeah. is ironic because that's usually the the accusation I hear for people who don't like D and D as a role playing game. They go, "Well, but characters and always characters are so weak when they start out." And I've heard that from zero edition to fifth edition, and yeah. it's crazy. I didn't mean to be over glib. I want to thank uh, DM Sean for an insightful email. Even even the parts oh, I might quibble with, it's still I love the kind of game mechanics. Take it apart, put it back together, see what works. And it makes you think, you know, and, and, and review tropes that we in classic D&D just accept as a given. It's always good to kind of stop and say, well, is it really a given, you know, and think about it. I mean, our goal at Save or Die is to both entertain and inform. And when a uh, listener writes in an email and does the job for us, hey, win-win. Can't yeah. argue that. Huh. I was I was thrilled when he said that we actually did an episode that made him think about it and, you know, prompted him to write this letter to us. That's awesome. <laughs> so our work is done. Not quite, because we have one no. more email. One more email. Okay. Our uh, work is almost done. Who's almost br- practical. Who's bringing up the rear of the party here? <laughs> yeah. Well, our last email is from the Angry Monk. Oh, that guy. Ta-da! Now he's going to be really angry because he was last. But we saved or, the best for last. Or he's a doppelganger. We'll check. Anyway, Angry Monk <laughs> writes, Hi, DMs. Hello. I just wondered if you could discuss clerics and their gods. There are two products available on DriveThruRPG.com. Divinities and Cults, Volumes 1 and 2, from OSR DAN Games. They are meant for Labyrinth Lord, and they discuss how the different gods from the Norse, Greek, Roman, and Celtic mythologies allow their clerics different boons and powers, and punishments. I like the idea that the god a cleric worships gives him or her a different flavor. Just wondering about your thoughts on the subject. Perhaps you could review these supplements. Love the show, Angry Monk. Thanks, Monk. Well, I'll reiterate our uh, review policy here on Save or Die. If the authors want us to review, they can, you know, just send us a copy, and we're happy to review it. And the reason we kind of put it on the authors is we get so much other stuff to review sent to us as is. You know, we, we... we have to give those priority over, you know, just suggestions. Am I being clear here? I <laughs> So if I had gone ahead and bought volume one and read it myself, I was a dumbass? Um, well, not necessarily, no. but... <laughs> How much was it? Uh, five bucks. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, if we, if we just tried to review, and, you know, because then we get into the, in the thing of we review only things we like. If it's stuff that we pay money for, you know, I feel more objective if the author sends it to us to review. I totally agree. That, I just couldn't resist. That and we have no budget. <laughs> well, there is that. Now, now that being said, I think a episode on clerics and their gods in the overall context of classic D and D would be a good idea. Yeah, that would be cool. 
I kind of want to say that we may have talked about that before, but I cannot remember for sure if we did that. Yeah, me either. I, I don't know that we did, or if we did, we didn't. <laughs> I can't remember what we talked about. So it's time for yeah. another one. I think the topic is show is definitely show worthy because this isn't a new idea. This is a place we all went to right away in the eight, early eighties. I this is so weird. About six months ago, I lose everything. I can't keep a hold of anything. But my brother is like Mister Archivist, and about six months ago, he comes in the office and just throws this ancient Manila envelope at me. He goes, "Here, I found this. Thought you'd want it." I open it up, and there's a hand-typed manuscript by uh, co-written by me that we had sent an article on this exact topic to uh, Tim Cask at Adventure Gaming Magazine in like 1983, which I will not share with anybody because it was 1983 and it's terrible, but it was the whole same idea. (laughs) You know, it was, you know, custom gods, custom cleric spells by deities, and I think we'd done the Norse guys. Cool. The first way I ever heard of Moorcox, uh, Eric of Meldemone series, before I even got a copy of Deities and Demigods, I um, heard about it because one of the players at the Delta Area War Gamers had a cleric who was a battle, you know, fighting, fighting cleric, and all, he would always shout "Blood and Souls for Ariok." Awesome, for going into battle, and I'm like, "Who the heck is Ariok?" And then, you know, and that's the kind of thing, you know, clerics with it. It's just rather than the rather vanilla sort of Catholic, but not you know, that the class is, you can really make it more. And mechanics are nice, but you don't need mechanics to do it. But anyway, we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> well, if we get around to, I mean, I won't do any spoilers on what I already read and the exact product Shannon was talking about, but if we do do that, I, you know, there's a way to do it and good and there's a way to do it bad. You can make it too crunchy really quick if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, there's a difference between giving your cleric a bit of flavor and making the cleric of each god essentially its own class. Exactly, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah, and and I agree. I think you know, go for flavor, but you don't want to like, yeah, create a whole bunch of new classes, especially for a lot of deities. Uh, and to not to not not to be down on the whole subject, but I think a lot of people under the guise of wanting to give clerics a different flavor, basically are using that as an excuse to allow their clerics to use bladed weapons. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a a cleric of Artemis. Don't I get arrows? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, well, because I worship the god of war, and he's always depicted holding a broadsword, my cleric can use a broadsword because that's the god he worships. You know, and, you know, it's not always that way, but I would say a lot of times it's a justification for being able to use edged weapons. My cleric? Why can't my cleric worship Mikhail Garevich, the creator of the MiG-15 jet? <laughs> oh, stop it! <laughs> you suck as a DM! Yeah, well, you're still not going to do that. 
Oh God! This this is funny because uh, uh, Brendan LaSalle was running a play test of an MCC adventure he's writing today, and I'm watching the play-by-play blows on Facebook from one of the players in the game, and he gave him the chaotic evil patron AI. So the first thing that shaman did was summon up a suit of power armor for himself and start breaking the adventure, and I'm just watching it from <laughs> the sidelines, going, yeah, "This is why you got to be a good judge." <laughs> Supplies. Oh, all right. Well, thanks, Angry Monk. You've certainly got us talking and probably got a future episode topic running up here. And so we end once again that dusty road to 2017, since this is the last episode of 2016. And what do we see down that road and how are we traveling it? Liz? I am traveling down that road with a whole bunch of swords in my backpack because I <laughs> worship <laughs> I worship a god that allows me to use every kind of bladed weapon there is so my cleric is the best <laughs> so, All right. so Liz's god is Fred Saberhagen yes yeah. the complete backpack of adventures backpack of swords there it is that's right. See, now, if that had been the Adventurer's Backpack that Trollord Games had been doing with their Kickstarter, where you get all the swords, you know, I, I'd have backed that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that actual backpack are actual swords. Yes! Well, there you go. How about you, Jim? I'm so exhausted. I'm not getting out of the email hot tub, so unless you put some wheels on this thing, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going down the road. I'm going to stay here a while. Waving from the hot tub. I'll see you guys. Well, I'm carrying our email bag as the last postman down the road to a possible post-apocalyptic future. Oh, sweet. A post-apocalyptic future. Huh? A postal-apocalyptic future. <laughs> That's almost as good as the office. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that, and we'll see you guys at in the year 2017. Da da da! Bye bye! See ya! Pre arc! And we're out till 2017. Yay! Nice! The Sacred Eye Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. The Sacred Eye theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. Dark Dungeons the Movie is a Zoe production and is available for download at darkdungeonsthemovie.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. Oh, crap. We forgot to do... Uh, <laughs> voicemail. It'll oh, save well. until 2017. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. First thing, 2017. Let's not forget. The apology episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kojo. You get a no prize. And now for the airing of grievances. <laughs> I